celebratory start to our time with the Lord this morning. Um, can, we, can we give a round of applause for the people who were baptized? And one, of the, uh, one of my favorite passages is in the book of Revelation. It talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb, that in the last days at, at the, at, in, in the new creation, there'll be uh, the, the um, celebration of the bridegroom. And there'll be a time where we are sitting at a table with Jesus. And the reality is, as people are baptized this morning, essentially what has happened is another place has been set at the table to to dine with the Father and with the Son. And so there's so much celebration in that. So um, this morning, we are diving back into our our One Another series um, and diving into what does it mean to follow in a community of believers as Christ has called us to in order to love one another, honor one another, and submit to one another. So this morning, I would ask for you, if you can, in your Bible or in your phone, don't worry, Spencer, if you have your phone out this morning, because I'm teaching, okay? So if you want to pull your phone out or bring a Bible out for your journaling um, this morning, if you're taking notes, we will be in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. And as you're looking for that or trying to mark your place with that, I just want to introduce myself if I have not had an opportunity to meet you. My name is Jay, and I am the pastor for discipleship and formation here at Emmaus. And we believe at Emmaus in practicing the ways of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And I pray that as you hear the message this morning, as you interact with the people here at Emmaus, that you will see that that is what our community is marked by. So, as again, as you're looking for Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, uh, let's recap a little bit of what, um, what's been going on in our series, uh, where we have been, and where we're going to go. Um, last week, or the week one, sorry, uh, Spencer began our series by talking about what it means to honor one another, okay? What does it mean to, lo- to honor other people in the sense of speaking truth into them, speaking life into them, and modeling a way of honoring Christ through honoring one another. And then last week, the lovely Paola Armfield, I want to give it up for Paola one more time, did a wonderful job helping us understand what does it mean to speak truth and to speak truth in love, to be transparent, to be honest, to be vulnerable, but at the same time, marked with a loving sincerity that Christ has given us as well. And so today, we transition into what does it mean to submit to one another? Yes, submit, the very taboo world in our, a word in our Western culture. So let's get some context of what's going on in this verse. Well, actually, let me read the verse first, and then we'll get some context on it. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. In it, Paul writes, he says, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
Do not get drink, drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Before we dive into the context, I do want to do something after reading the scripture. If you have, if you can this morning, I'm going to practice an exercise in meditation in silence. And I want to ask that if you can, willing, uh, place both feet on the ground, palms up, ready to receive, and with eyes closed, that we stand, or not stand, I'm sorry, sit in silence for just a few moments, and I will pray for us as we dive into the sermon. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for what you have done this morning and what you will continue to do in the life of those who have died to themselves and been raised in Christ. Father, we pray that this morning we would be in a posture of reception to your word. Father, we'd be in a posture of receiving what it means to live in community and in love towards one another as you've called us to. Father, I pray that if there is hard soil in our hearts and our minds this morning, Father, that you would soften it. Father, that your spirits would till the soil, that it would be cultivated to receive your word. Father, that it would grow and mature within us. And Father, it would compel us to live a life that is different and marked only by your son, Jesus. Father, we love you. We pray for you in this time to speak. And we ask these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. So let's jump into uh, what's going on in Ephesus, what's going on in Ephesians. Paula talked a little bit about this last week. We're going to recap a little bit. Um, We need to note that Ephesus was a major city in the ancient Roman Empire, and it was a center of trade, culture, and religion. The city was home to a large temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. We talked a little bit about this last week. People would go, give their fidelity to Artemis, and in, in some ways there was also an economic advantage for the people, the blacksmiths who were creating small idols to the temple of Artemis, people going, buying these. And we'll see in Acts 19 that there was actually a riot in the city because the Christians had made such an impact on the city that it was affecting the trade of those who were making these small objects. The city, again, was home to a large temple dedicated to Artemis, which was known as one of the seven seven wonders of the ancient world. The city was also a hub of pagan worship, and it was known for its occult practices and its magic. Being a Christian and being a part of the Christian community in Ephesus was very, very difficult. It was not easy based upon the influences around them, the amount of ideologies that were around them, the amount of influence that was around them. 
so when the first recipients of Paul's letter are hearing verse 21 to submit to one another, read in the assembly, they might as well have been stunned by this. From their experience in the highly stratified hierarchical Roman world, they knew all about submission. Submission was how people approached their superiors, their fathers, their masters, their husbands, and most of all, Rome itself. We must recognize that Rome was not just the political center of the, of the earth at that time or civilization, that, civilization at that time. It was also the spiritual center. Because to say Jesus is Lord was the antithesis of saying Caesar is Lord. So they have this pressure. They have this mounting um, influence, this ability to possibly be colonized by the culture around them. And so with that, their understanding of submission would flow in one direction from down to top, from the lesser to the greater. But now Paul was urging believers to submit to each other. This was radical in his day and for the people. So let's let's understand what submit is. Let's get some translation of, of how we would translate submit. The verb translated as submit has a basic meaning of to subject oneself, be subjected or subordinate, to obey. The standard Greek-English lexicon renders the sense in 521 as volunteering, voluntarily yielding in love. And so the original Greek word was hupotasso. And this word was originally used as a military term, meaning to arrange troops in a military fashion under the command of a leader. And in non-military use, it means a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, or carrying a burden. Paul would use this in Galatians when he said that we are to carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This, of course, is not being used in a military sense in Ephesians 5, so we can assume it carries the sense of cooperation and responsibility towards a desired goal. In many ways, what Paul is asking them is he's asking them to rally around one another, and that the, the core way of doing this was to submit to one another, to be in mutual submission to one another. Now, in the Greek Septuagint, I'm not sure what the Septuagint is. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. The same word is used for submit. And in Psalm 37, 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. The word translated as rest is hupotasso. However, the original word in Hebrew is damam, which means to forbear, to hold peace, to be silent or rest. This understanding of the meaning of this word in Hebrew helps us to give more nuance and breadth in the meaning of the word we translate in English as submission. So we need to understand that the English translation does not necessarily fit with the translation that we are hearing and what Paul's sense is trying to convey. So we need to understand what submission is not. It is not blind obedience. It is not a a dynamic of power. Who has power over who? And I want to acknowledge that unfortunately, these verses of submit and submission have been weaponized by those in power. They have been used to make excuses for abuse and neglect. And I'm here to tell you that was never the original intention. So if you are sitting in here today and you have felt the trauma, you have felt the hurt 
of these ideas of submission and blind obedience, of harm that have come from it, I want to tell you, as a member, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I'm very sorry. But ultimately, I believe that God is calling us to be, as it is said in earlier in the translation, of yielding in love to one another. So, let's jump more into this context of what's happening in Ephesus. In addition, the Christian community in Ephesus was likely experiencing some challenges and conflicts, both internally and externally. Paul himself has spent several years in Ephesus and had established a thriving church, and you can look at this in Acts 19, verses 1 through 20. However, there were likely disagreements and tensions within the community, as well as opposition and persecution from outside forces. Given this context, it is possible that Paul's instructions to the Ephesians to submit to one another was meant to address some of these challenges and conflicts by calling for mutual submission. Again, mutual submission. I want to make sure you write that down. Paul may have been urging the Ephesian Christians to put aside their differences and work together for the sake of the gospel. He may have also been encouraging them to resist the cultural pressures of pagan worship and magic and the occult and what was going on at the temple of Artemis and to instead model the self-sacrificial love and service that is exemplified by Christ, which we will get into more detail later. The Apostle Paul's instructions to Ephesians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ serves as a transitional statement in Paul's larger argument about Christian living and relationships. In the preceding verses, Paul has been discussing the mutual submission and love that should exist between husbands and wives. And in verse 21, he broadens this message to apply to all believers. By instructing the Ephesians to submit to one another, Paul is emphasizing the importance of humility, mutual respect, and unity within the Christian community. And ultimately, this would show in history. The early church was marked by its hospitality. It was marked by its giving. It was marked by its willingness to go out of its way for people who were foreign to it or different to it. In the Apology of Aristides, I think I pronounced that right. I apologize if I didn't. But Aristides, who was a pagan philosopher before he came to Christianity in the second century, he said this. He said, the Christian is distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which he observes. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of the ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. I love that last line displaying to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. I ask myself, do I live a life that's striking? Do I walk in such a way that woos people to understand that there's something greater beyond myself? These are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. These are the things that we should live as, as a community. But... The reality is we live in a world where that there is an element of antithesis to that. So if we go through history and we understand culture and how culture has changed, we know that there has been the Enlightenment period, 
There's been industrialization. We have grown and changed from the time that this was written. But the reality is that things that the the early church were dealing with in Ephesus are not so much different than what we deal with today. No, we don't necessarily live in the same hierarchy of patriarchy that the Romans did, but we have only turned that into something different. So what do we deal with the most here in our Western culture and as Americans? While we may not have a hierarchy of slaves and masters, we have a new hierarchy. And that is the hierarchy of self that is formed in individualization. We are a highly, highly, highly individualized culture. Part of that plays out in rights, expression, autonomy, achievement, and consumerism. Rights are the foundation of our country, are they not? We found out how much we care about our rights within the last two or three years, did we not? The COVID pandemic put a strain and a mirror up to us when it comes to debating who has what rights, whose rights suppress other people's rights, Are my rights more important than your rights? Are your rights more important than my rights? We have elevated rights to a place of ownership for ourselves. Expression. We live in a society that wants to have the freedom to express yourself however you feel to express yourself. To come into contact and to elevate what is true to you. Autonomy. No one can tell me how to live my life. No one can interrupt me in the way that I want to live. Achievement. What are the things that are stopping me from getting to the place that I want to get to, that I believe are going to make me happy, bring the joy? If, if, the, if the grass is just greener on the other side, what is stopping me from getting to the other side? And lastly, consumerism. I want it available and I want it now. I know I might be sounding a little harsh, a little doom and gloom over individualization. I do want to say that individualization is not the same as individual responsibility. There is a difference. Yes, I believe that scripture supports the fact that we have a responsibility to ourselves. We do. But ultimately, that responsibility should be executed towards others in the community. And not just for ourselves. Not just that what we believe is our rights, our desires, what's best for us. Ultimately, it's more sacrificial, as Jesus has exemplified to us. So, I did some nerdy reading this past week, as I tend to do, and came across a study in 2008 by the political scientist Ronald Engelhart, and it was called, titled Changing Values Among Western Publics from 1970 to 2006. 
And it was analyzed data from the World Value Survey, which is basically a global research project that has been tracking changes in cultural values and beliefs since the 1980s. And in his study, Engelhart found that there has been a gradual shift towards individualism and self-expression values in West, particularly Western societies over the past several decades. Specifically, he found this. He found that people in Western societies increasingly prioritize individual rights and freedoms over collective interests and obligations. That there has been a decline in religious adherence and traditional values and an increase in secularization and tolerance for alternative lifestyles based upon this individualization. Now, there have been some positive outcomes to this. There has been rise in support for gender equality, um, um, care for creation, and other causes associated with self-expression and individualism, okay? But Engelhart argues that these shifts in values are a result of economic and social changes, including increased prosperity, greater education, more exposure to other cultures and ideas. But he also notes that there are trade-offs associated with these changes, including greater social isolation, loneliness, and a weakening of traditional social institutions. So you might be saying, well, that was 2008. That was like, what, 15, 14 years ago? And yes, 2008 was 15 or 14 years ago. But some more recent studies were published. In 2018, a study was published in the Journal of Social Psychological and Personality Science, and it found that individualistic values are associated with lower levels of well-being, particularly in countries with higher levels of economic inequality. And the study suggests that individualistic values may exacerbate the negative effects of economic inequality as people focus more on their individual needs and desires rather than on the needs of the broader society. And then furthermore, in 2020, a study was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology Review that found that individualistic cultures were associated with lower levels of social support, higher levels of loneliness, and higher levels of mental health problems. And the study suggests that the focus on individual needs and desires may come at a cost to social connections and mental health. I don't know if y'all are aware, we have an anxiety, depression, mental health crisis in our country. Engelhart suggests that there may be negative consequences associated with the shift towards individualism and self-expression values in Western societies. Some of these negative consequences may include the following. And we have touched on these a little bit through our series, but we're going to revisit them because of this inability to submit to one another or lack of uh, being conscious of others' needs. So some of these are Social isolation and loneliness, as we mentioned, as people become more focused on their individual needs and desires, there's a risk of social isolation and loneliness. This can be especially true for older people who may have weaker social networks and fewer opportunities for meaningful social interactions. There's been a weakening of traditional social institutions. Traditional social institutions such as churches, community organizations, and political parties may become weaker as people focus more on their individual needs and desires. And this can lead to a decline in social capital, which is the value that comes from social networks and relationships. I don't know if there's anyone old enough to remember the time, uh, which some of these organizations are still around, but remember the different community organizations that you would find in, in your city, whether it was the Rotary Club, the exchange club. There were all these different clubs. But there was a need, there was, there was an understanding within those communities that we needed these places where social interaction could happen. 
that we were giving ourselves for the benefit of not just ourselves in those moments, but the benefit of the community around us. And many of those organizations have either died out or are on decline. And we see this even with church. Particularly with the COVID-19 pandemic, church attendance has dropped across the board. Because most people have decided that social interaction can happen in a digital space. And as we've talked about before, entering into a digital Babylon of information. There's been a fragmentation of society. If people become more focused on their individual needs and desires, there is a risk of society becoming fragmented with people identifying more with their own narrow interests than with the broader interests of society as a whole. We see this play out in social media. One of the things that I find very interesting is when people talk about Facebook being free. Facebook is not free because you're the product that they're selling. The algorithms are based to cater to your needs. And so when you cater to your needs and you're unable to see the perspectives of other people around you, you live in an echo chamber. And you're unable to create the skills or to exercise the skills and empathy for people who are different than you. This is how fragmentation continues. There's been a lack of social cohesion. As people become more individualistic, there may be a decline in social cohesion, which in this is the sense of shared values and beliefs that hold societies together. This can lead to a lack of trust and cooperation between individuals and groups. Alexander de Tocqueville is a French, um, French guy that basically toured the United States in its early days and um, wrote this great memoir on, you know, the idea, the, the concept of America and what America is and what makes it so different than other people. And one of the things when we deal with injustices and differences and, and, and trying to work through our problems in a pluralistic society is the reality that one of the things that he noted was that America is the greatest experiment culturally in all of the history of civilization. Because sometimes people are like, well, they don't, they don't really have these problems in Sweden. They don't run into these social issues necessarily in, in um, maybe Europe or in other places. The reality is those places are highly, highly homogenous societies. They all come from similar backgrounds, have grown up in similar environments, and look very similar to each other. America does not do that. We are very different, which makes us sometimes a ticking time bomb. <laughs> and that's something we have to recognize. If we're not able to hear other people, if we're not able to recognize their experience, their backgrounds, what they've been through, we can't hear it all. And so we have to ask ourselves, how can I lay down my own experiences, my own ideals, in a way to hear from somebody different than me. And then lastly, environmental degradation. Engelhardt suggested that the shift towards individualism and self-expression values may lead to greater environmental degradation as people prioritize their own needs and desires over the needs of creation. 
Now, I know there's probably some people who think, man, this guy must be really green. He must have like a compost pile in his back of his yard or something. And that's not the case at all. It's not. It's hard enough to try to get my wife to recycle. So I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. But we have a mandate in the Genesis story to steward creation effectively. That's not a hippie thing at all. That's just being a good steward, okay? But it plays into that. Consumerism plays into that. What do I buy? What do I consume? It plays into how do I feel about other people who are going to have to deal with this? Like all the cardboard that shows up at our house from Amazon. (laughs) I love my wife very much. I love her. Ben Sass is a former senator. And he said this in his book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. He says, tribalism is the enemy of all human flourishing. It makes us stupider, meaner, and more dishonest. And ironically, tribalism also makes us more tribal. We're all susceptible to it. And the only way to fight it is by rejecting our natural impulse to make everything about us and start focusing on the people around us, the people we were called to love. We have been called to love. We were not called to put ourselves first. We were called to love. All right, Jay, well, you've berated me and told me how bad it is to be individualistic. What are some practical steps, though? So here are some practical steps, as I believe Paul encourages us in the passage today. We are to listen actively. That's part of what house churches within our community is about, is that we have a space that as believers, we can listen actively. Not just listen, but active listening. Meaning we put all of our, we do our best to put our biases, our own ideas of the world and check them at the door and sit and receive what we're hearing. One practical way to practice mutual submission is to listen actively to others. This means really hearing what they have to say and seeking to understand their perspective, even if it's different from our own. This can build trust and empathy in relationships. And I believe empathy is something that our world is very low on right now. How can we empathize with other people? How can we put ourselves in their shoes without criticism without Monday morning quarterback of, well, they should have probably done this. Maybe they should have, but they didn't. And you're called to respond in the moment. How can we listen actively to other people? It's part of the reason why James says that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Another thing that we are very low on as a culture. We are to serve one another. So another way to practice mutual submission is to serve one another. And this can involve acts of kindness, such as doing household chores for your spouse, offering to help a friend in need, or volunteering in your community. By putting others' needs before our own, we just demonstrate a spirit of humility and service. Again, this is another reason that we have implemented this practice in house churches. All of our house churches are required to do a passive community service project, basically in the, in the confines of their home, and then to do one actively in the community. Because it's not just about us. We have been commissioned to share, to show, and actively participate in the work God is doing in the world. 
And we have to ask ourselves, are we submitting ourselves to that? We are to practice forgiveness. Forgiveness is an important aspect of mutual submission as it requires us to let go of our own hurt and anger in order to reconcile with others. And by extending forgiveness to those who have wronged us, we demonstrate a willingness to submit to the needs of the relationship and work towards healing and reconciliation. I want to repeat that last part. We, the willingness to submit to the needs of the relationships. Not necessarily our needs, what we need to receive, but what does this relationship need? If this relationship was ordained by God, then ultimately, what can we do to meet the needs of that relationship? We are to seek reconciliation. So in addition to forgiveness, seeking reconciliation is an important part of mutual submission. This involves actively working to repair broken relationships and build bridges between people who may be divided by race, class, gender, or other factors. Forgiveness and reconciliation are very hard, particularly in a society where rights are elevated to the top. I have the right to be angry at this person. I have the right to be bitter or frustrated or hurt by this situation. Yes, there are emotions that we have to process in our hurt. There is time where we have to step away and to assess what's going on. We have to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to say, I've been really dealing with this situation with this person. I feel very hurt by it. But ultimately, as Spencer said a couple of weeks ago, then it's our job to go seek that person out when we are in that space in order to rectify the relationship. We have to be honest too about when we're hurt by someone. This happens often, particularly with this idea that, you know, we don't want to rock the boat. You know, we don't want to hurt someone else's feelings about the way that they made us feel. But there's a place where we have to be honest about when things are not dealt with, they fester. They become poison to our own soul. And it leaks out in other ways where the hurt you receive from someone else is then... uh, portrayed as collateral damage to other people that you react with because you have not dealt with it. So we have to ask ask those questions. Are we practicing forgiveness? Are we seeking reconciliation with one another? And then last but not least, we must embrace diversity. We have to understand that we are not all the same. We do not all carry the same gifts. We do not all offer the same thing but each of us has something to offer. And that should be celebrated. We should celebrate the gifts within our community. We should celebrate their wisdom, their insights, their talents, whatever it may be. It requires us to embrace diversity and to celebrate our differences. And this means recognizing the unique gifts and perspectives that each person brings to the table. And seeking to learn from one another By valuing diversity, we can build relationships that are characterized by unity, respect, and mutual support. Are we willing to sit at the table with people who are different than us? Are we willing to recognize the different experiences of those around us? These are the questions that we have to ask. 
Galatians 5, verses 13 through 14, Paul writes this to Galatians. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Too many of us have treated love your neighbor as yourself as a bit of an oversight based upon our understanding of our own rights, what we feel is owed to us. We have been called to model a way of living that is foreign to the world, that is antithetical to the world that we operate in. It's not about just being nice. It's not about just doing an exercise and helping someone else so that the endorphins get moving in your brain, right? It's about modeling a way of living. It's about reflecting here on earth as it is in heaven. We need to know that if we want to talk about rights, that Jesus, who was fully human, fully alive, and the son of God, laid down his own rights for us. His act of serving others was not one of weakness. It was one of strength and obedience. And we were called to model this mindset, that of Christ towards others. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, Paul writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we submit, it is to the glory of God the Father. That is why we submit. That ultimately love would be there. Where love is, there's mutual submission. The Protestant reformer John Calvin said this. He said, God has bound us so strongly to each other that no man ought to endeavor to avoid subjection. And where love reigns, again, that's my favorite part, where love reigns, mutual services will be rendered. A community marked by love will practice submission towards one another. If love is at the forefront, if love is the centrality of all that we do, and as Christ has modeled to us, then ultimately submission will follow. There is fruit in that. And again, I want to remind us that submission and to submit to others is not an act of weakness. So much of our culture would say that it is an act of weakness, an act of giving in. 
Brenda Salter McNeil says this. She says, submission is not a passive or weak posture, but a courageous and transformative one. And it requires us to lay down our own desires and interests and to prioritize the well-being and flourishing of others. Mutual submission is therefore a powerful way to resist the forces of oppression and injustice in our world. Christ has laid down his life for us. He gave up his rights. And in, so doing, and in doing so, he has invited us to give up our own rights for something greater. All that we experience in this life is temporal. It matters, but it's temporal. And we have to ask, in some of these situations, is this the hill that I want to die on? Is this the legacy I want to live, leave behind for either my loved ones, my kids, my spouse, whatever it may be? Because at the root of all of this is pride. And pride is what brought our, our first parents down. A lack of obedience, a lack of trusting that God knows better. I wanna ask and leave you Where are the areas of life where you feel like you are lacking submission to your brothers and sisters? Where are areas where you can step up in submitting to one another? The greatest act or one of the greatest models of submission, Jesus was great. He did really great things, guys. But one of the things that he did before he dies, he's in a room with his friends, with his disciples. And he pulls out a basin, a water basin. He fills it with water. And he begins washing his disciples' feet on the eve of his death. Before he's praying in the garden that the cup of suffering would be passed from as he's bleeding and sweating knowing that this is going to happen. He's washing the feet of his friends. Jesus operates in an economy that is a social economy, a kingdom economy that is unfathomable for our world. And he invites us into that beauty. And so after washing their feet, he invites them to the table. And so today, in a model of obedience and reflection, of submitting and being a part of that table, we're going to come to the table this morning to partake and be active in the glorious submission that Christ has done for us. To submit ourselves for his will and for his kingdom. Because in a society, in a culture where so many people are saying Caesar is Lord, that these earthly trappings are Lord, by coming to the table, we are saying Jesus is Lord. As we come to the table, there will be people who are available to pray for you. 
And I want to offer you the opportunity, if there's something in your life this morning, if there's something that you're wrestling with, whether any of the practices that we talked about in regards to seeking forgiveness, being reconciled, being honest about maybe how you're spending your time, how you're investing your time, and where you are in the season of life, we, we want to pray for you. And I also want to recognize something. You may be sitting in this room and have nothing to do with Jesus. You have not experienced the love that I'm talking about. But you feel something calling to you. And I want to offer you the opportunity this morning to come partake in the table. Partake in prayer. And be a part of a community where we are striving to model, to submit to one another. Let me pray for us as we come to the table. Father, you are so good to us. And many times when we don't deserve it, that you, you are consistent, you are unwavering, you stand there beckoning and calling to us, wooing us and inviting us. Father, it's through your act of submission. It is through the work and ministry of those that you loved and those that you encountered that you have modeled to us what it means to live a fully human life as you intended us. Jesus, that you are the proto-human. You are the intended design that has always been there for us. And you invite us to walk in that. So Father, I pray this morning, Father, we would walk in mutual submission to one another. God, that we would love each other as you love us. Father, we would speak life into each other as you, as you have spoken life into us. Father, we would contend against the principalities, the kingdom of darkness that would harm us. Father, that we would stand in solidarity as a kingdom where you said the gates of hell would not prevail against. Father, this is your church. This is your body. This is what you laid your life down for. This is what you gave up your rights for. Father, you've called us to submit to one another in that. Father, may we be humbled by that. And Father, more than humble, may it move us to action. Father, there's a world out there that is struggling to find its place, to figure out what this all is. And Father, you have places as your scripture as a city on a hill. And Father, I pray that we would reflect that. Father, we would walk in that. And so Father, as we come to the table, Lord, I pray that we would understand that we are doing this in remembrance of the sacrifice that you made towards us. Father, that as you wash our feet, we are called to wash the feet of others. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you. And we celebrate as we come to the table in this moment.